This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of Monday, February 27th, 2017, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 418 of Defender Radio. Talking about conflict isn't always easy. Emotions can be high. The sight of a large animal can be unnerving and cause an instinctual fear reaction. And the loss of a family pet can be devastating, not just for the family, but for an entire community. Frequently, the emotional upheaval leads to a desire to find a problem. And a coyote can be an easy target. Though the science showing the lack of effectiveness of lethal control to prevent conflict is growing, as is the evidence of successful non-lethal coexistence strategies, there is still a lot of breakdown in communications about coyote conflict. From reporters who simply don't know there's a difference between a conflict and an attack, to residents whose heightened fear makes it difficult to see the full ecosystem in their backyard, finding ways to talk about conflict is a challenge all on its own. Fortunately, we have advocates like Leslie Sampson, the founding executive director of Coyote Watch Canada, to discuss how to pose questions in an investigation of conflict, to considering the range of animals that could have made those footprints in the snow, and why we need to see coyotes as an integral part of our communities, Leslie joined Defender Radio. Lately, you and I, uh, in our talks, have been looking at a lot of media reports of uh, conflicts. And some of this has been ranging anywhere from someone saw a coyote on their street up to stories of people being surrounded by and attacked by groups of coyotes. Um, and I feel like what, where we need to start in a conversation today is what's the first thing we need to look at when, when we see these stories in the media, um, as advocates, what is the first step we should be taking in order to maybe find out What's really going on? Well, first, when you uh, read a report or an article, I mean, a report really lends itself to a little bit more investigation. So I would say in the media, when you do read these accounts, there's a lot of details that are often missing. Uh, it's, it can be a challenge navigating what is actual um, confirmed fact or assumption, or a guesstimate. So looking at an article and seeing, oh, this, you know, it doesn't make sense. It's, something's not right with this. And oftentimes when there is more dialogue that perhaps challenges, in a good way, because obviously, you know, communities need to know the facts about a situation, and understand what uh, mitigative steps can be taken to ensure that an encounter or perceived uh, conflict, uh, you know, is, is removed from, from the uh, situation. So I think analyzing um, the information and then moving forward, and oftentimes that could be uh, involving a, an actual interview um, with the person or persons involved in, in the in the article. When you and I first met, and I was a, a reporter, and we, we were talking about coyote conflict, and I remember reading the 
the interview with the other media outlet that had covered it, and then speaking with the individual myself. And when you start asking questions, even similar questions in a slightly different way. Yeah. And you maybe start getting slightly different answers. And I, and I don't think it's intentional either. Um, and is that something you've noticed? I mean, I know you do interviews with people all the time. Um, is it sometimes how you ask questions that ends up getting you the best possible information? Absolutely. And I mean, we are so grateful every time uh, a citizen is open to a discussion. You know, oftentimes it's a little bit emotionally charged. Uh, you have to be patient with people. And unfortunately, the media can play such a, an important role in educating and facilitating accurate information. But oftentimes you're, you're having a, a, a reporter do an article who really doesn't understand, first of all, canid behavior, and then really doesn't have the skill set to ask the questions to get the answers. So a lot of times what we find once we have that opportunity to engage with um, an individual that's experienced something, uh, when we do ask the questions, there's often different ways of asking, bringing out scenarios that a person that's fearful or upset or really concerned might overlook. I mean, a perfect example of that is the recent footage that went viral of, a, of an individual going into a building with an alleged coyote in pursuit. And clearly, it wasn't a coyote, it was a domestic dog, but I mean, that um, article and footage went viral and, you know, had somebody been able to sit down and talk to this individual. Uh, we understand, though, how folks can misidentify um, animals in the landscape. And it's, you know, we have to, again, be patient with people, especially if a, a family pet's gone missing. And so an article that's written in the paper has very limited information that can be based on fact and science. And I think without the investigative um, component, whether it's through that reporter going back out, like you and I, our first meeting, you know, that's what we did. You shadowed me in, in a particular area. And, you know, clearly, because human behavior sometimes is more, you know, we can kind of rely on these, uh, you know, behaviors of we're going to find food here. This is an attractant here. Well, this doesn't make sense because there's no tracks in this area, so clearly it couldn't be, um, a, you know, a coyote or even a domestic dog. So a lot of those questions, um, I think there are some stellar reporters that understand, you know, how to ask questions, but also if they're only going to base it on previous articles that somebody else has written, I think it, it fails the community and it falls short of providing accurate information to the public and it's okay to say you know what it was a canid but we don't know what it was was it a domestic dog was it a coyote was it a fox was it a wolf um or whatever i mean we've had reports of you know animals that have been uh hit by vehicles we get the calls it's there's a dead coyote and we arrive and it's a raccoon and people will laugh and chuckle at that but you know, you have to understand folks that aren't used to looking at an animal that's deceased, 
they really don't know what a, a dead coyote or what a dead raccoon is going to look like. You and I, we were looking at one incident uh, very recently, <clears throat> and we, we were having one of our, our lovely little discussions slash arguments about use of language. And the reporter had said there was yes. an attack on on uh, on a dog. And you and I both looked at it and said it wasn't an attack. I mean, the dog was uninjured. There were multiple coyotes. If it was an attack, it would have been much more significant. And one of the things I said is that the reporter simply doesn't know there's another word. Yes. Um, so can we explore briefly sort of how we describe those different types of interactions? Because uh, I think that's where very frequently we fall down. Um both as advocates, maybe not presenting that information appropriately, and for the, the public and the media to not realize that there is this, this breadth of potential interaction between pets and coyotes and people and coyotes. Exactly. And I, you know, I, I can't stress and emphasize enough the importance of the language that we use, not only in the advocacy and science community, but also in in social media and in the media forum. And so when we describe a situation, when you actually have the opportunity to, again, uh, interview or have that great dialogue with the individual that experienced this, this incident, you find out and you break it down. And how we define attack or encounter, most of the time you're dealing with an encounter and when a person is afraid or they're concerned for their dog or they've been reading a lot of um, misinformed articles, it can really percolate uh, a sensational perspective. And so, you know, for us, you know, using, using words that reflect not only science but compassion is critical when we're trying to share with communities the best education and uh, safety protocol that's available. So you know, nuisance, vermin, um, you know, pests, those words have kind of, you know, gone way of the dodo. That, that really doesn't tell a community that every animal species interacts. Most incidents where we're interviewing folks, when they have an opportunity to break it down, actually step by step of what they can remember, because again, our memories can get pretty foggy when there's fear, it's shut down to seeing what's really in front of us. And so coyote behavior, they're, they're really trying their best to communicate to us what we need to do. And if a dog is involved, that ups the ante. And there's so much distress and there's stress. There's, um, you know, perceived danger on the part of the coyote. A domestic dog is a threat to family, territorial um, you know, disputes and also food items. And so, you know, if we're going to report on something, report on it. Don't add words in there to grab a headline, like, you know, person attacked. Attacked to me in my world and how we look at incidents that involve um, animals. Attack means that, you know, there's contact made. There's, there's a, you know, being... Being approached or having a coyote encounter is completely different than ha having a coyote attack. Well, and I think it's also um, important to look at the concept of an attack versus a defensive gesture on the part of the coyote. And that's, uh, I remember talking with, um, oh, who was it? It might have been Mark Beckoff, actually, 
about uh, coyote behavior way back when. And um, he told me, like, as a, a quick thumbnail, you can look at dog park behavior to sort of maybe get an <laughs> idea. And you can see dogs will, will start snarling and snapping and rolling. <clears throat> and it can look very violent, but they're not trying to hurt each other. They're And, and this, this sort of delves into an issue of dog science and behavior that uh, uh, we, we do not have the time or inclination for today. But... If they actually want to hurt each other, if the goal is to attack, um, and I have seen this, and if you've ever seen two dogs actually attack, um, it's very frightening. Uh, and there is immediately almost blood and uh, uh, punctures and feathered ears and things like that. But, you know, in this one case that we're thinking of, um, a gentleman said that three coyotes attacked him and his dog fended them off, but there was no injury to anyone. Uh, coyotes or dogs. So to me, that kind of yeah. jumps out as was this act like was the intent of the coyotes to harm? Um, how can we tell in a case like that where the person says I was attacked, but in the back of my mind, with what I know about canids, sort of across the board, it doesn't quite compute. Well, the other thing is this: if a dog is free roaming and in the in a brush area or in a park where other wildlife is present, coyotes are territorial very defensive for their family members and their young pups. If a dog's off leash, oftentimes they're going to be chasing that, that, that domestic dog. Well, the domestic dog is going to run back to the companion person. And so you've got, you know, wild canids in pursuit of a domestic canid. And, I mean, it's the same thing, you know, the, the, I think the research has indicated in one study that it's over 90% of conflicts between domestic dogs and wildlife, it's because the dog was free roaming. And I think it's a really important point that we need to remember. And, you know, when reporters are interviewing individuals and, you know, people are pretty good. They, they will say, yeah, my dog was off the leash. Sometimes they don't, you know, come clean about that small detail, but I think it's a really important one. And coyotes are, you know, going to protect their own as you and I would. So following a domestic dog back to where that, that human is there waiting and very distressed and, you know, having a whole family of coyotes, you know, follow in pursuit, um, that doesn't warrant an attack. And I think we have to really look at the behavior and what are the precursors that led up to that point. And when a dog is loose in the bush and we don't have eye contact and total 100% recall, we have no idea, and it's instinctual for domestic dogs to chase wildlife. That's part of their DNA, and we can't, we can't genetically take that out. It's, it's present. I mean, you know, m my dog is a prime example. I mean, he is, you know, he has to be on a leash unless we're in an area where, you know, I know that I'm doing training work with him, and uh, we have to appreciate that our domestic dogs have instinct just like their wild cousins. Yeah. And I think uh, something I find kind of funny um, is you see people walking their dogs off leash, even, you know, whether I'm here in, in, in my home in downtown Hamilton or when I lived in the suburbs or when I've been in the country. Um, and they say, my dog's always with me when we're off leash. And then you watch them walk around the corner and 10 seconds later, the dog walk around the corner. Yeah. Um, and it's hard for us as human beings, I think, to remember that outside of our homes, we're part of an ecosystem. And 
our concept uh, of property really doesn't play a role in that ecosystem. Um, and that's, I think, maybe where some of these things come from. Uh, a quick note, the study you were referencing is Coyote Interactions with Humans and Pets reported in the Canadian print media by our friend Dr. Shelley Alexander, and it's 92.3% of the encounters between dogs and coyotes. Uh, the dogs were off-leash. That really is significant. Well, I think it's significant for two reasons. It demonstrates that there is um, really a, a glaring issue with folks not considering where they're walking their dogs, um, what wildlife is in the area, and if there isn't any signage, or if there is signage and they're not paying attention to it, we can, we can decrease those incidents. And the, the second thing is that it, it also provides a really great foundation for individuals that want to engage in nature, be outdoors, and appreciate the wildlife, but what can they do to minimize these encounters? And so I think it's a real worthwhile study. I think it's a transition period for dog walkers to appreciate that, you know, we, we actually had a post on Facebook for the love of leash. You know, that leash can minimize so many incidents that occur. And the other thing is this, when our dogs are running loose in wildscapes or in urban areas where um, coyotes or fox are, you know, setting up their homes, all of those wildlife species, including deer, not only are we dispersing them unnaturally and they're expending energy, but we're also putting them at risk and the dog because that dog could run in the line of traffic or that dog could be caught in a snare or a trap in the bush that we're not aware of because there isn't any signage that is uh, part of regulations for those kind of devices in, in our community. So, you know, there's a number of things that put our domestic dog at risk running off the leash. But when we're investigating these incidents, it's really critical to get the facts surrounding what actually did happen and why. Well, and speaking of what actually did happen, you and I have both recently been talking a lot about in our communications, I think, the other animals in the landscape, uh, particularly in areas where coyotes are are being seen more frequently or there is, for whatever reason, uh, be it a reasonable one or an unreasonable one, uh, an increased awareness or apprehension about coyotes. Anytime there is any kind of wildlife conflict, um, it is immediately considered coyotes. There is an article uh, in British Columbia on Castanet uh, and I, I was, I was genuinely surprised that this got published, um, where a woman said she has seen a coyote, and when walking her dog at two in the morning, heard animals growling and snarling and fighting. Said it was coyotes killing dogs, and and that that was the extent of the article. Yeah, um, this this one person's sort of interpretation of what they heard at uh, like and. And this is, I remember I actually sent you a recording uh, following that because I wanted to verify. Yeah. I heard two raccoons fighting while I was outside yeah. with my dogs. And I said, is that raccoons? Because they make such this wild sound sometimes um, in certain situations. And it, it's understanding all of the different animals that could be involved in a conflict. Uh, but people seem really 
uh, reticent to accept that it could be one of these birds of prey or another canid or or even an animal like a raccoon or a skunk or a possum? Well, all of our animal species, for the most part, are going to vocalize whether, you know, they're communicating uh, amongst their own species or it's a warning for other animals. Um, you know, so you, you hear vocalization and the, the, you know, we have heard this thousands of times that, you know, we heard the coyotes ripping apart an animal and it was awful. I was terrified and I said, well, you know what, they're, first of all, it would be like us sitting at the dinner table with our mouth full of food trying to sing opera. Hmm. It's just not even an, an accurate conclusion. I understand why folks would think that, but they're also not going to be advertising that they've found a food source. And coyotes are very good at what they do. They're great at foraging and hunting. And the, the scuffling and the, the sounds that we hear are often you know, interspecies interaction and raccoons, owls will vocalize. And for somebody that's not used to hearing these vocalizations, it can be very concerning and confusing. And so I think, again, you know, when we have an opportunity to, um, you know, investigate and hear these vocalizations, because a lot of folks will send us samples of what they heard. And, um, you know, it's, it's a good time to get the facts out there and help folks, again, work through what's fact, what's fiction, what's an assumption, and what's actually happening. And so when we do the investigations on sites, whether it's for a farm or a residential area uh, or, or, you know, green spaces where dogs and coyotes might interface, we are looking for evidence of uh, the species that are in that area. So doing that species inventory, which would also include uh, birds of prey, do we see pellets and whitewash, what evidence do we see of kill sites, you know, birds of prey, um, you know, they, they, consume, they consume and um, will carry prey away, but there's certain evidence of what species actually was involved. And, and then once an animal is deceased in the landscape, that becomes a food source for a wide range of other animals that will take advantage and feed carrion on that deceased animal, which is very, it's traumatizing for folks that have lost a pet and then their pet is found in the landscape, but there's processes and steps that can be taken to look at the facts. Well, that's, I uh, had a Facebook memory pop up of a blog I had done about two years ago, and you'll remember this one. Uh, It was either Pennsylvania, that's JJ saying hello, uh, either uh, Pennsylvania or New York, sort of somewhere in that sort of northeast portion of uh, uh, the United States, a German shepherd dog had been found dead um, and partially consumed by coyotes. And the town that this happened in sort of started literally and figuratively losing their minds. Um, They were calling for traps and investigations and this and that. And finally, there was a necropsy done on the dog, and it was found out that it was blunt force trauma that killed it, probably hit by a car. Yeah. And that coyotes, as well as other species, had been feeding on the, 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 the corpse. Um, and it's very difficult. I think you're right. You, and you really nail it, is for us to sort of see these, these members of our family. And, you know, I'm petting mine, JJ, right now, who you've met. 
Um, and to remember that all life plays a role in it. Um, it's, it's a very difficult and emotional concept um, that I think we, we and you, you said very rightly, we need to be very compassionate when those conflicts occur. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, nobody wants to ever, um, you know, see a situation where a family pet has, you know, died. Um, but the other thing is this, I mean, an animal can be hit by a car and, and run off and perish in the bush from brain injury, uh, internal bleeding, a wide range of uh, physiological damage and injury. And so an animal can be left in the bush area and we don't know that it's there. And so the other thing is, you know, if, if a family pet does go missing, you know, to keep on trying and, and go out. But, I mean, some domestic dogs can travel great distances. Uh, we have a wonderful story about Dot who went missing for a month and, you know, it was right out there front and center. The coyotes got this dog and this little, really uh, high-spirited, beautiful little dog survived on its own for an entire month until um, eventually it was found. So, you know, I think we need to really encourage folks to um, make sure that, you know, make sure that... Uh, you, you keep looking and, um, you know, don't give up. And that often, you know, sometimes uh, the body is never found, especially if it's a bird of prey that takes that small dog or cat. Um, you might not ever find uh, remains. So that can be very uh, upsetting for folks too. And I think, you know, it, it's a difficult subject and people want something to pay for their pet's death. But I think we, we have to keep going back to the science and the evidence. And, you know, sometimes the conclusions just are not based on science or facts, and it's based on emotion. But those are the stories that garner so much traction in social media. Absolutely. And that's the, the downside to our information age, too, is that this misinformation or or partial information gets spread just as quickly. Um, and what I'd like to do briefly too, uh, I, uh, you and I, uh, you saw I had a friend comment on something I had posted personally um, about what to do in a certain situation um, in terms of seeing a coyote when they have their dog. And I, I knew the basics. I mean, you and I have talked enough about this over the years. You know, make yourself big, throw something toward but not at the animal. Um, uh, yell, don't scream, use a shake can or some other unusual noisemaker. Um, all of these things don't run away. But with a dog on leash, I feel like the, the situation may change a bit. And I think both in sort of the backyard scenario and on a walk scenario, needs to just sort of have a very brief overview of what do we need to do? I mean, uh, you know, as, as you know, I have JJ who's a large dog, you have a large dog. But there's also small dogs, uh, both in backyards and on walks. So let's start with the walks. Uh, for the two different sizes of dogs, what's the best way to respond to seeing a coyote? So if it's an area where people are familiar with, if it's the same trail system, same pathway, same bush where an individual goes to walk their dog, first of all, 
you know, <laughs> leash up. That is, uh, you know, that is going to guarantee you, first of all, have control over what your dog can get into, but it also gives you an added advantage that you are prepared in the event that a, a coyote happens to maybe come onto a trail. But I, I'm going to take it a little step further, though, Mike, in, in that when we are outdoors, we need to be a cognizant are there a lot of scats on the trail? And that's a fancy word for coyote poop. Like domestic dogs, they're leaving their mark, especially in, the, in territorial uh, markings. They're going to leave that, that evidence. In certain times of the year, if you know that, you know, there's been an increase in sightings and dog walkers talk to each other, you know, there's always information being passed um, back and forth. You know, be aware because many times, again, if you see a coyote in the distance, your dog's on a leash, that dog is part of you. If a dog's off a leash, that coyote is honed in on the domestic dog. And then once that, you know, if a person gets their dog on a leash, keeping them tight to their body, ensuring that, you know, the coyote, first of all, could be curious we have cases all the time. We're working on three right now where there's residents that allow their dogs to play with coyotes. Um, you know, that's not great for a number of reasons, but, you know, if, if the dog is close at hand, it gets a person better control. And then also being aware that, okay, you know what, the coyote knows we're here. It's off in the field there. Um, has your dog chased that coyote before? Because just like our dogs have really great memories, so do coyotes. If there's an incident that has occurred in the past, that could increase the stress level for that particular coyote. So, you know, if, if it's a denning situation, uh, and sometimes coyotes choose some really strange places to, to raise their families. If they, they're limited in opportunity to pick a, a really great den, um, maybe there's a, a den close by on a trail system in a small plot of land, uh, like we saw you know, in, in one of our cities we were working with. It was a park right in the middle of the city. So you know, don't, don't go in there. If you do see evidence of food being left on a trail, bag it and bring it out and report it to the authorities because that territory then becomes a hot spot and there's expectations um, on the wildlife that they want that food source. And so, you know, it's not just about walking your dog. It's not enough just to say, well, I've got my dog on a leash. Look at what's happening in that area. And if there is evidence of feeding, it must be reported. They can, you know, even send us an email and we can connect with the city where it's taking place. So those are things that as, you know, we engage in the outdoors, we want to have that exercise, that spiritual wellness, but we have to kind of broaden how we're looking at our place in that ecosystem. And there are no political boundaries in nature. They're going to go where they go, easiest travel corridor, um, getting to the food source, if it's a, a human-provided food source, they're going to navigate through backyards and, you know, ravines to get to that food. We have seen, you and I working together, you and I individually, uh, with back, backyards in particular, is people have an expectation of safety in their backyard, which is reasonable. Yes. However, it's also, especially, I think, in areas... Um, 
I think of like my folks place in the suburbs that backs onto a ravine. It's like, yes, they have a fence, but they are also well aware that they, they regularly have raccoons and squirrels and chipmunks and birds. And once or twice, they have seen a coyote come up to that fence and check things out. Yes. Uh, so how do we then say to someone, you know, yes, this is your property and yes, you should feel safe here, but. So um, the recent uh, case in New Brunswick, uh, an eagle actually uh, grabbed a hold of a small dog and they had let their dog out in the nighttime and they defended the dog by hitting the eagle with a shovel. Um, I think I, I think one of the most important messages that seems to be lacking in awareness is that, you know, your backyard is an ecosystem. Even if there's a fence there, it, it really isn't going to protect your small dog or cat, first of all, from slipping under the fence. And, you know, we, we do investigative um, assessments for some homes and the fence needs to be repaired, that kind of thing. But uh, a bird of prey is very capable of taking a small dog or cat. And so, you know, letting your small dog go out at nighttime, especially if your neighbors have bird feeders, birds of prey are very intelligent and they're going to, you know, hang around those locations because it's a smorgasbord for them. There's so many animal species feeding at the bird feeder, on the ground, in the trees. Um, So, you know, sharing that information with the public and letting them know, hey, go outside, you know, even, even tethering your dog, small dog on a leash in a backyard at nighttime, that dog is still at risk because, you know, a bird of prey can very easily swoop down, try to grab that little pet, and then flying away, and then it's, it's pulled out of the talons, and a lot of things can happen, or the harness can come off. And so... Our backyards are ecosystems, and especially if there's natural corridors that lead into the area or you have neighbors that are feeding the wildlife, most of the time the connections aren't being made. And so the backyard, if you, if you have green spaces around and there have been sightings of canids, whether it's fox, coyotes, or wolves, you know, you've got to be aware that, okay, if they're around, so are other, other animal species. I mean, we, you know, ermine are very capable too. But once our dog leaves our property, a wide range of risks and um, dangers are befalling that animal. And what happens after that, out of our vision and our care, a lot of times it's guesswork what actually happened. Finally, to wrap up, something I was thinking about um, as we prepared for this uh, interview today was the people who, uh, for whatever reason, think coyotes do need to be killed, called, controlled, etc., who will look at what we do and say, um, you're completely, like, you, you will never admit a coyote could do wrong. Um, oh. <laughs> and, yeah, you, you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. And it's, I, I, I struggle with sort of, we, we had someone on Facebook the other day that I ended up having to get to, to, to ban because they, were being uh, somewhat irrational and inappropriate, but you know, it's a, they, they, they see us talk about coexistence and say, well, what if, and what about? Um, and I kind of want, it's like the whole reason we're doing this is to prevent that from happening. 
but a lot of people seem too 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 quick to jump onto that of uh you know you're saying coyotes are good but what about this time that this bad thing happened how do you respond to that or how do you think advocates should respond to that well first of all i think we have to honor that all animals play such an important role in the ecosystem right down to ant species butterflies canids um the, you know the natural um, carrying feeders. So, you know, stepping out of the argument of whether coyotes are good or bad, first of all, they're from the same canid family as our domestic dog. So many of the absolutely fascinating uh, characteristics of these wild canids, we see subtle, um, subtle examples of that in our own uh, pet community. People are reluctant to change for a variety of reasons. And for us, coexistence is not, does not exclude safety. If it's true coexistence, safety is part of that thread and that patchwork of creating awareness, education, and prevention protocol. And so when a person will say, well, you know, coyotes are are bad and they're killing this and that. Well, you know what? Absolutely. There are individual coyotes that have, you know, killed uh, domestic pets. They might go after livestock. But at the end of the day, if you're looking to remove coyotes from the landscape, first of all, scientifically, there's no, uh, really, there's no way that we can. It's not going to address the inherent issues that are in a community. So if your neighbor is feeding roast beef to the coyotes uh, every other day or foods, food items, other coyotes are coming into that landscape afterwards. And so the human behavior is when it changes, it's so empowering. People really embrace the opportunity to practice good stewardship. And so there's always going to be the odd person that will have their own agenda about whether coyotes are good or bad, deciding that and where somebody stands really has little bearing on true coexistence because coexistence is going to involve all of us co-flourishing with not just each other but with the nature. And we have to appreciate the ecological role that coyotes bring to the table. I mean, we've had such an increase in coyote sightings uh, many of our communities have an influx of rats. It's just the, the you know, climate and infrastructure changes, impacts uh, where animals are going. And so, you know, again, highlighting what the role is for these animals. I mean, thousands and thousands of rodents are consumed by fox and coyotes. They do such a great service for us. But again, if somebody just is clinging on to the fact that, you know, Coyotes are these vicious animals that need to be removed from the landscape. Uh, you know, it's not a realistic uh, perspective, but, you know, we can only provide what has been field tested for us and what has worked and is working now. And, you know, it's like somebody calling us to ask us or, you know, Facebooking us about the height of a fence that they should put in their backyard. Well, first of all, without actually doing a site inspection, we're not going to engage in that dialogue because we have no idea. You could put a six-foot fence up. Coyotes and dogs are very capable of climbing 
and so are fox, and so are ermine, and plethora of other species. But we have no idea what's taking place in that community at that location. Are there a ton of bird feeders? Are there compost? Are people leaving dead stock just down the street in the field? So all of that detail is very important. And if there was actually a confirmation of coyotes that have come onto the property, that's the other thing. So we would look at the tracks and the scats, what's in the area, go into the bush, um, go to neighbors. But, you know, we can't give... Uh, we can't give that kind of advice without either pictures or a video. Uh, we're doing some outreach right now in, in the States uh, with a, a cattle and a chicken farmer, uh, two different uh, locations. And it, it, we've had a, a ton of pictures come in. So we can help those folks in the best way that we can based on what, what's that individual situation. And every backyard is different and every um, home is different. So behavior really is going to dictate um, the willingness of folks to engage and become empowered. Killing an animal doesn't empower us. I think it puts us in a really uh, precarious situation because then we have expectations that our animals are safe. And when in fact they aren't, they need us to care for them. That's why they're domesticated. That's our responsibility. And you know, I, I think, again, just being patient with people and the, the wildlife. And, and, it you know, it's something that does take time to adjust. Simple actions and adjustments in our lifestyles can really open up such a great opportunity to understand not just coyote behavior, but our place in the ecosystem, too. To learn more about Coyote Watch Canada, visit coyotewatchcanada.com. That's it for this week. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.